<laughs> well, Henry Gustav Molaison. He was born in 1926, and uh, it soon became apparent that he had um, epileptic seizures, seizures that were extremely uh, disruptive and serious. Uh, after his 16th birthday, the seizures became even worse, almost uh, incapacitating. And so eventually, by the age of 27, in desperation, uh, Henry underwent surgery to remove small parts of the medial temporal lobes, the medial temporal lobes of his brain, in an attempt to control the seizures. And this, the surgery was a success in that the seizures all stopped, but it then became clear that there was a side effect that they hadn't really anticipated. Uh, it is called anterior grade amnesia. He suffered from severe short-term memory loss. He couldn't learn anything new after the surgery. So all of the information he had learned, you know, his name and everything that he'd ever read or learned before he was 27, he knew and remembered, but um, every day when he woke up, he woke up with a blank slate um, as to what, what came after that. So every morning he woke up, he thought he was still 27 years old, even though he lived to be 82. And so he would constantly, throughout the day, his memory would get wiped sometimes, and he would suddenly realize that he was old again. He became known as Patient HM, and he was interviewed um, dozens and dozens of times by researchers over the years, um, asking him questions. He never got tired of answering the questions. He never got frustrated with interviews or the tests or the games that they had him playing as they were studying his memory. Um, you can't get bored if you can't remember doing anything. Uh, he never became cynical. He never became depressed. Nothing was ever monotonous for him. Uh, he maintained his idealism and confidence, the confidence of a 27-year-old right throughout his life, um, despite his frequent bewilderment discovering the news afresh so many times over and over and over. One virtuous side effect is that Henry never stayed angry. Um, he never harbored resentment bitterness, and he never held a grudge. And of course, the condition that uh, Henry had was tragic, but imagine we had some way to tap into just that one side effect, that we couldn't hold a grudge, that we were able to wipe the, the slate clean at least every day of the things that people have done against us and that we would be able to just forgive them. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. This is what Luke is talking about in the prayer um, that Jesus taught the disciples. So turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Last week we learned that we can give God glory by asking for our physical needs. God designed us to be physically dependent on Him. He wants us to come to Him for those physical needs, and He wants us to do that constantly. That's why we pray for our daily bread. We also learned the difference between what we want and what we need. And the daily bread is the essential nourishment for our lives, the things that we actually need. So that's what we learned about last week. So let's read the prayer again, and we'll move on to the next part. Luke 11, verse 2, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And so if this is your first time in the series, it'll sound a little strange to you because it's different from the Our Father who art in heaven prayer that we learn in Matthew. And remember the main lesson we learned from that is that Jesus did not intend this prayer to be prayed only as a rote prayer that everybody memorizes, but that the template that he used in both cases, even though he used different words, um, shows us the the flow of a good biblical prayer that starts with 
God's renown and glory and the hallowing of his name, the revering of his name and the spreading of his fame as the overarching motive for everything we pray. And then uh, last week we looked at the daily bread. So tonight we're going to look at two essential actions to enjoy your relationship with God and man. This is something, if you can develop this art of forgiveness that helps your relationship with God, the experience of that, it also will help your relationship with people because they're going to sin against you. Um, So firstly, ask for a clean slate. That's how you, this is going to help your relationship with God. And secondly, offer a clean slate to people that have sinned against you. So the first essential action, ask for a clean slate. We see that the, the prayer goes, and forgive us our sins. The word forgive, afes, in Greek means to release. Um, to send away, to, uh, to let it go, as the song is, right? As the song goes, let it go. Um, that's what he's asking God, please just let it go that I sinned against you. That's what we're asking for, forgive us. This is why Jesus came to earth, so that we could be forgiven. We have sinned against God. We have incurred a debt against God. We cannot pay that debt. This is why God came down and lived among us, lived a perfect life that didn't deserve any punishment, and then offered that perfection and that righteousness on the cross, bearing the punishment of God the Father in his body for us, hanging on the tree, so that whoever believes in him can place their faith in him and get that righteousness accounted to them and have their guilt accounted to him. And so that's the gospel. Luke 176, Zechariah um, proclaiming after his tongue was loosened. We read, we read it this last week, right? Um, and you, child, speaking of John the Baptist that had just been born, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord, knowing that Jesus was on his way too, to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people for the forgiveness of their sins. The forgiveness of sins was the reason Jesus was coming. This is why John the Baptist came to prepare people. That's why he was baptizing them in repentance so that they could receive forgiveness from what Christ was about to do. When he saw Jesus, when he was all grown up, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away, lifts up, bears up the sin of the world. That's why he came, to take away those sins. And that's what we're praying for when we ask God to release, to let go, and allow our sins to be carried away from us. The reason you need Jesus is not because you need a life coach. Jesus is not just an example of how to live well. Jesus came, and the reason you need him is so that your debt could be paid so that you can be forgiven. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, meaning through the death on the cross, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That's Ephesians 1, 7. And in Psalm 103, verse 12, a famous verse, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west. That's how far he removes, takes away, carries away, releases, sends off our sin. And that, my friends, is the good news. But if you're thinking carefully about it, you have to ask this question. Why if Jesus died on the cross to pay for all my sins, at that point they were all future sins, I wasn't even born, for every sin I ever committed in the past and am committing in the present and will commit in the future, and all of that was secured by me placing my faith in him and having his righteousness accounted to me, why then, if I have been forgiven once and for all, is Jesus telling me that when I pray, I need to pray, Father, forgive me? 
Why is it that every time I pray, I should have in my prayer an asking for forgiveness? I thought I was forgiven. You see the conundrum there? When I got saved, I asked Jesus to forgive me, and he did. So why do I have to keep asking him to forgive me? Or are you supposed to pray the Lord's Prayer the first time asking for forgiveness, and after that, just know that you have it? Well, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. There is an event that happens in John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then chapter 13. Um, an event that happens that provides an illustration and a teaching about this very concept. While you're going there, I'll just give you the answer. So I'm not going to keep you in suspense. Why is it that I have already been forgiven, but I still have to ask forgiveness every time? And the answer is that there's two types or two categories of forgiveness. One we call forensic forgiveness, and the other one we call relational forgiveness. Forensic just means um, legal forgiveness, uh, what we would called justification. It's that moment in time that all of your sins get forgiven. It's the moment that you place your faith in Jesus. He gives you a new heart. The Spirit regenerates you. You become born again. You become a new creature. Everything that you've done in the past is now in the past. All of that guilt that you've incurred, and in fact, all the guilt that you're going to still incur is all paid for on Calvary way back when, and the moment you put your faith in Christ, you are forensically forgiven forever. And that's the part of the gospel that usually when the preacher is talking about you're forgiven of your sins, that's the one that he's talking about. The one that all Christians have forever because of what Jesus did. But technically, that's only one kind of forgiveness, forensic. The other kind is relational forgiveness. Relational forgiveness, just as the term says, this is something that doesn't only happen once, like forensic does. This happens repeatedly because it's based on the disruption that comes in your relationship with God when you sin against him, which is very analogous to the disruption of your relationship with your wife or your husband or your kids or your boss or your coworker when you sin against them. There's a relational aspect that needs mending. And so whenever there's disruption in the relationship, you need to fix that. You can't just restore the the legality of the problem. I, I knew a lady once who, who hated her sister. And when I asked her about why she hated her sister so much, she told me about an event that happened when they were teenagers, where she had run a bath for herself. And she was looking forward to this bath. And she had walked away from this bath. And when she came back to get in, her sister had snaked it from her. <laughs> Now, who hasn't done that, okay? Um, <laughs> but there was just something so wrong about that. And it's not as if this lady had never had another bath in her life. That wasn't the point. The point was that that relationship had never been set straight over all these years. The sister had never apologized for that. That's relational, right? Well, now we see this in John 13. In verse 5, this is in the upper room. This is on the night that Jesus will be betrayed. He's having the Last Supper. And um, we'll pick it up just in verse 5. Uh, you, you know this, when, well, we'll pick it up in verse 4. When they, after supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and he poured water into a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet 
and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You remember the scene, right? And he comes to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered, what I'm doing you do not now understand, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if, you do not, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And then Peter says to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So just pause there. You, you, it's a familiar scene, but you can see what's happening. There's a relationship thing going on here. Peter realizes that this is weird, that this, the king of the Jews is bending down like a servant and cleaning his feet. And he's like, this is inappropriate. This is wrong. I should be cleaning your feet, not the other way around. And Jesus says, listen, let's just get this done because you don't, you don't know what's happening here, but this is an important picture that I'm building in for the people that are going to read the gospel. Just, just hang with me. And, and Peter says, okay, well, and then Jesus says, if you don't let me wash you, you have no part in me. So there's this, Jesus is lifting this up now, like raising the stakes into something that isn't clear yet. And then Peter says, well, if that's the case, if washing my feet is what makes me right with you, then wash all of me. You know, because Peter's just that guy. Um, he's all in. He's always all in, right? And so Jesus says this, and this is where the instruction comes in. Very interesting. Um, verse 9, uh, Lord, do not wash only my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus said to him, verse 10, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he's completely clean. And you are clean. Um, and that's a you plural. You all are clean. But not every one of you. And then John puts this in. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. So Jesus is, is speaking in, in two different levels here. There's this metaphorical sense, there's this physical sense. I physically, I'm going to clean your feet. But then he says, if, you've, if a person has bathed, in other words, if you've, if you've had a wash for that day, you've had your shower, you don't need to be washed again, but you just need your feet washed because, you know, when you walk around with sandals all day long, that's the part that needs washing. And so Jesus is drawing a parallel here to a spiritual cleansing of salvation. And the reason we know that is because John says he's talking about Judas. Judas, in the whole room, there was one person who was not a believer, Judas. There was one person who did not have forensic forgiveness, you could say. There was one person there who was unclean, spiritually speaking, who had not had a bath, spiritually speaking. He had never been cleansed of his sins because he never placed his faith in Christ. That person was Judas. So we know we're not talking just about physical cleaning, but spiritual. And so now think about it. Once you've been forgiven of all your sins, forensically, you don't need to be forgiven of all your sins every single time, that's not what you're praying for when you say, forgive me. Uh, forgive us our sins, we forgive those who others sin against us. When you're praying that, you're, you're dealing with the foot washing part. Even though you've been bathed, you still need your feet washed. Otherwise, you have no part with me. So if you, if you ignore the, not ignore, but step away from the physical of what's going on, the, the actual act of foot washing, and look at the spiritual metaphor here, once you have been completely cleansed of your sins, you never need to be completely cleansed of your sins again, but there is a relationship element with Jesus that needs constant restoration, relational forgiveness. 
So think of asking for forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer or any time you pray as having your feet washed, spiritually speaking. You never need to have the bath again. That's taken care of. But you need your feet washed. Okay, you can go back to Luke. So a simple application is make it part of your daily prayer to confess your sins to Jesus and ask his forgiveness. Just know that as you're walking through this world, you're picking up the muck of life in your, in your spiritual world because you are sinning in your thoughts and in your attitudes and in your selfishness and in the desires you shouldn't have and maybe the words that you say, maybe things that you do. And then at the end of the day, you feel rotten because of what you've done. You feel like you're far from God. You feel like you don't deserve to pray. And none of that's true. God is right there. You're forensically forgiven. If you died in that moment, in that moment you'd be in Christ's presence. There's no punishment. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And yet you do feel that there's a disruption there because you've sinned against him. So just fix it. Just ask for forgiveness. He always forgives you. He's always faithful. If you confess your sins, he is always faithful to forgive. 1 John 1 verse 9. So that's our first application. Ask for a blank slate whenever you need one and do it frequently. Secondly, offer a blank slate. In verse 4, it says, forgive us our sins. That's the request, asking for a blank slate for you. For we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Notice the, the parallel. Sins are a debt. When you sin against God, you have inter. In You've incurred a debt, which Jesus pays for you. When you sin against each other, we incur debts. You, uh, you, you've used this terminology before, haven't you? You say, you owe me an apology for what you said. That's understanding that what you said incurred a debt against me that isn't resolved. You owe me something for that. You owe me an apology. You say to somebody, I don't deserve that. The way you treated me was not, I didn't deserve that. We, we have an understanding that there's a, an indebtedness that comes when you treat a person wrongly. So the flip side of the forgiveness coin is that a person who has asked forgiveness, asked for a blank slate, is a person who will extend forgiveness. A person who will grant a blank slate, or offer one at least. Notice there's a causal link here between the two actions. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. There's a cause there. The reason I feel confident asking you for forgiveness, for our relationship to be restored, the relational forgiveness, is because I'm somebody that restores relationally with the people that sin against me. What's the implication? If I am not somebody who's for getting forgiveness from you, then I'm not somebody who's extending forgiveness. Or, vice versa, if I'm not somebody extending forgiveness to those people who sin against me, guess what that means? I'm not somebody who's right with you. Those two go together. You can't be perfectly right with God if you're refusing to forgive people who are sinning against you. You can't keep asking God day after day to forgive you for your sins and relationship to be restored while you are simultaneously refusing that blessing from other people who, does, who want it, who are asking for it. So your ability to forgive shows that God's work of forgiveness is having an effect in you, making you forgiving. 
In fact, when Jesus gave this Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, he added these words. Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. That, that's stated quite blatantly in that one. If you don't forgive other people, God will not forgive you. You say, well, that sounds a lot like there's a condition now in my forgiveness and my salvation. Well, firstly, remember, this is not talking about your salvation, your forensic forgiveness. This is talking about your relationship forgiveness. So if you are not restoring relationships with people, you're not, you're not willing to restore relationships with people who are sinning against you, then that's going to disrupt your prayer life. You're going to feel at odds with God, or at least you should if you understand what's happening. A forgiven person is a forgiving person. If you aren't forgiving, then what are you doing asking for forgiveness? You know the parable in Matthew 18 where Jesus illustrates this. I won't go there, but it's the parable of the, the man who owes an, an outrageous debt, you know, zillions of dollars to his master, and he's supposed to go to jail for it because he can't pay it, and he begs for um, forgiveness of the debt, and his master wipes the debt clean. And then he goes, and on the way home, he finds a guy that owes him 100 denarii, which is just a few thousand dollars, and he says, You've, you will go to jail until you pay me the last cent. And the guy begs him, please, please, and he says, no, you're going to go to jail, and throws him in jail. Well, the other servants see this, and they go and report him to the master. And the master calls him in and says, the master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Implication, of course you should have. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Wow, that's a, that's a really powerful lesson, isn't it? You don't want to be the servant that's wringing the neck of the person that sinned against you by stealing your bath or insulting you or embarrassing you at work or stealing from you in some way or somehow harming you, leaving your cell phone on when you told them you would turn it off or whatever it is that you've now done. And you're all upset about that. And yet you've sinned against the God of the universe, and a righteous, an infinitely righteous God, and he's wiped clean that whole slate, and, and you, don't, you don't see that connection? That's why Charles Spurgeon said, if you don't forgive others, then every time you read the Lord's Prayer, you read your own death warrant. Because every time you read the Lord's Prayer, you say, forgive me in the way that I'm forgiving others. Well, I'm not forgiving others. Now, this is a frequently asked question whenever we hear about forgiveness. What about if there's a person who sinned against me and they're not sorry for what they've done? What do I do then? Anyone ever heard of a situation like that? We've all been there. We've all been in some situation where somebody has wronged you and they have not asked forgiveness and they refuse to. Either they, they don't admit that they've done anything wrong they think they were justified. 
or they know that they've hurt you, but they don't care. And so they're not going to apologize. Or whatever the thing is, usually it's just because they don't even know. And if you try to point it out to them, that might even make things worse. Or they're just going to say, no, you're overreacting. Or they'll say, I'm sorry if you were offended. As if I'm the problem for being offended. (laughs) So what do you do in those cases? Well, here's your answer. Ephesians 4, 32. Paul said, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, and here it is, Ephesians 4, 32, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So it sounds like the same thing that we just read in Luke's prayer, but there's a nuance here. Forgiving others, constantly, continual practice of always being forgiving to other people in the same way as God forgave you in Christ Jesus. Now, so that so the question boils down to, so I need to forgive other people the way God forgives me. How does God forgive me? Well, there's a few aspects of God's forgiveness. God initiates and pursues the offending party. That's how he forgave me. I didn't seek him. He sought me. No one seeks after God, Romans 3 tells us, right? So maybe the way you should reconcile with this person who's hurt you is that you initiate this transaction. Secondly, God, when he forgave you, he made the relationship with you better than it was before, didn't he? He didn't just say, okay, well, let's just shake hands and move on. No, he adopted you into his family and lavished you with all grace. So just remember that when you want restoration with someone, you can't just be smug about the fact that, yes, I extracted that apology from them, and now, ha. No, no, no. That means now your relationship needs to be restored and and even improved. Thirdly, God is willing to forgive anyone who asks his forgiveness. He's willing to forgive anybody who asks, anybody, who, whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But does that mean that everyone is automatically forgiven? So let me ask it this way. Does God actually forgive everybody? You're reluctant to answer because it sounds like the answer should be yes, but then you're thinking, what about Hitler? Um, <laughs> Does God forgive everybody? And the answer is no. If he does, why are there people in hell? Why are there people that he's forgiven paying for the debt that he forgave? No, that doesn't happen. It's crystal clear in Scripture that God does not forgive everybody. God forgives everybody who asks for forgiveness. There's a difference. Unbelievers don't even admit that he exists let alone asking for forgiveness. There's some people who do admit that he exists and they're angry at him, shaking their fist at him, denying him, rejecting him. They're not forgiven. So who gets forgiven? Somebody who realizes I've incurred a debt against this God and I need to ask his forgiveness. We call those people believers. Believers are people who know. They believe God exists. Jesus is his son. Jesus is the only way to him. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Believers are the ones who believe that. That's how they make right with God is they go and ask for forgiveness, trusting that he grants it because he promised he would. But that 
doesn't apply to people who don't ask. That's why we do missions, by the way. That's why we evangelize, is we wake people up and we tell them, hey, you, need, you have a problem. You've incurred a debt that you can't pay. You need to ask God and he'll forgive you. So, if someone hurts you, they sin against you in some way, and they refuse to admit it, they'd refuse to admit that they're wrong, or they don't care that they hurt you, they know it was wrong, but they're not doing anything about it, or they justify it, okay, I did that and it was wrong and I'm kind of sorry, but you know, you started it, you provoked me, or I was hungry and whatever, that's why I did that. If you ever find yourself in a situation where the person's actually not asking your forgiveness, you cannot forgive them. Because forgiveness is a transaction that happens between two people. God doesn't dispense forgiveness out there for all the people who don't want it. He offers the transaction, and if you ask for it, he promises he'll give it to you. That's how you need to forgive other people. You as a Christian need to be willing to forgive everybody no matter what they've done to you. So that the moment they ask you for forgiveness, you give it and you give it from the heart. But if they don't, there's nothing more you can do. You can try to pursue it and initiate it. But sometimes people just don't want to make up. They don't want to ask. They, they don't care. Romans 12, 18 is the only verse in the Bible that instructs you to try to do something you might not be able to do. Every other verse in the Bible says, don't do it. Don't gossip. You're like, well, I'm trying. No, stop trying. Just don't do it. Do not lust. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Don't, don't, don't try to not steal. Don't steal. But there's one verse, Romans 12, 18. If possible, Paul says, so far as it depends on you, here's the command, live at peace with all. And wh why is that a command that's got this huge caveat? If it's possible, as far as you're able, do this instruction, live at peace with people. And the answer is because you're not always able to live at peace with someone if they're not willing to live at peace with you. You just, you just can't. They're, they've got a problem with you. They've got to be in their bonnet about you. And you can, you can try and do... And that, that even goes for if you've sinned against someone else and you ask their forgiveness and they say, I'm not forgiving you. Well, okay. I can't make you forgive me. As far as it depends on me, I'm, I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to ask forgiveness. I'm going to be humble. If you... I'm going to offer forgiveness, for, but if you don't want to ask my forgiveness or you don't want to grant forgiveness, our relationship is going to have trouble, and it's not my fault. It might be my fault that I started it, but it's not my fault that's continuing. As far as it depends on you, if possible, live peaceably with all. Now, I just need a, a little footnote here about forgiveness, and we can have Q&A afterwards so you can tease out some more of these specifics, but this is an important footnote on forgiveness. Just because I have forgiven you, you've asked forgiveness, I've granted forgiveness, we've restored our relationship, it's even better than it was before, that doesn't mean that there are no consequences now. Me forgiving you doesn't automatically remove the consequences. It can sometimes. You might, you know, steal, I don't know, a cup of coffee from me, and I say, and then you ask my forgiveness, and I say, you can keep it, because I don't want your cooties anyway. Um, 
But sometimes there's a consequence that even though this forgiveness has happened, it still needs to play out. So for example, if um, a guy comes and he steals your car, three days later he knocks on your door and he says, listen, I heard this really convicting sermon at Christ Fellowship. Um, so I got in your car and I, I drove straight to your house and I just need to ask you forgiveness. I, I want to confess I'm the one that stole your car. And, and I just want to ask you forgiveness. And you, I'm a believer and I'm, okay, so you grant forgiveness and you hug and you pray together and you decide to have a Bible study once a week together. This is the best your relationship's ever been. And then he gets in your car and drives away. You're like, well, well hold on a second. <laughs> I thought you just said you were sorry for stealing my car. Well, yeah, but you forgave me. I get to keep the car though, right? No. No, no, no. Part of your repentance and your admission that what you did is wrong is to make restoration where you can. You see that all over the Old Testament. If you steal someone's ox, you got to give it back. In fact, you got to give more than what you stole back. That's how you restore that relationship. And sometimes the consequence is not even something you can restore. It's just there. You know, if you hurt one of my children and then confess that to me and ask my forgiveness, I may forgive you, but I'm not going to hire you to be a babysitter because now there's a consequence. There's a wisdom there that you have now betrayed a trust that even though the relationship can be restored from a forensic point of view and from a relationship point of view, there's still a, there's still a consequence there. You can be sorry for driving drunk, but they don't give you a license back when you say you're sorry. You know, there's still, you still got to pay the fine. You did know that, right? You seem surprised by that. You're like, oh boy, <laughs> I better drive sober from now on. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's certain things that even if you're sorry for it, there's just, the consequence is still there. And it's often in relationships. If you um, cheat on your spouse, your spouse may forgive you. But a little bit later, you, they might... I've, I've seen this happen. It was, it was this lady, she was my um, hairdresser back in South Africa. And when she heard I was a pastor, she was like, she would always ask me these counseling questions. And I'm like, I hope I don't tick her off while she's cutting my hair. But anyway, and one of them was, I don't trust my husband. He's away at this conference. And I just, I think he's going to commit adultery. And I was like, you can't run a marriage that way. You have to trust your spouse. And I thought, well, what makes you think that he's not trustworthy? And she says, well, he was married, and we met at one of these conferences at a hotel, and we committed adultery, <laughs> and he left his wife, and now I think he might do the same to me. And I'm like, okay, well, you made that bed, lady. You've got to sleep in it now. Like, you can't, go, you can't undo something you've lived yourself into. That lack of trust there is something now that's there. So you need to realize that, and this is a footnote on, on justice it's very important, especially in churches. Some churches get confused by this whole, well, you need to forgive and you need to restore. And they, and they, they forget that consequences are an, a natural part of that. So, for example, you'll have a church where um, people in leadership have abused a child in the church and it gets exposed. And then the counsel to the family is like, okay, well, you need to forgive the person and carry on as if nothing happened. No, you need to forgive the person and then report them to the police so they can go to jail for what they did. Those two things aren't incompatible. That's how life works. You sin, there's consequence. There can be relational forgiveness, there can be forensic forgiveness, and there can still be a consequence. It's very important to realize that we don't hide sin. 
Now, sometimes a person wants to restore, but they can't. They've caused hurt. There's nothing they can ever do to pay it back. There's no evidence that you have that they're truly repentant. And at those cases, you just take a person at their word. You just take them at their word. Even if they do it 70 times 7, Jesus says. If they're, they come and they ask you forgiveness, and they, if they can restore, they must. If there's some sign of repentance, they'll show it. But if there isn't, you just take them at their word and then leave it up to God to judge that. And I, I just want to add a little footnote. This is kind of advanced forgiveness stuff. For those of you who are ever going to ask forgiveness, you don't have to insist when someone, if someone's asking forgiveness of you, I'm usually, if, some, if somebody's hurt me and they're asking forgiveness, I try to be as gracious as I can and as, like, lenient as I can to accept. I know it's hard. I know it's embarrassing. I know it's difficult. So if they come and ask my forgiveness, I'm just going to, I'm not going to nitpick their language. But technically, they should not say I'm sorry. They should say forgive me. And so, of course, I'm not going to hold somebody to do that if they're speaking to me. But if I go to somebody and speak to them, so if you go to somebody and ask their forgiveness, you should actually use the words, please forgive me. Because those are two different things. Sorry is what you say to somebody when you do something by accident. So if I bump a glass of water and it spills all over your lap, I say, I'm sorry. Can I clean it up? Can I get you another glass of water? If I take the water and throw it in your face... Now I'm not sorry anymore. Now I have to ask forgiveness. You see, those are two different things. I can be very sorry that something happened. I can be very sorry that I was the cause of it. And I'm going to say sorry for anything I've done to harm you, offend you, or hurt you if it was an accident. But if I've done something against you that's a sin, that's not an accident. Now I need to ask your forgiveness. So like I say, don't be the Nazi grammar police when someone says, I'm really sorry I did that thing. Here, I'm going to give it back tenfold, and you're like, well, it doesn't count. You didn't say, forgive me. You know, don't make them grovel. But when you ask someone, you know, and, and I just know from personal experience, trust me, for some reason, there is a big, there is a physical difficulty that comes with saying the words, forgive me, <laughs> that isn't there with sorry. It's easy to say, I'm sorry. But when you say, please forgive me, as you're forming those words, there's just the weight of it hits you that I am in this person's debt and I am at their mercy and I'm asking them for something. I've just hurt them and now I'm asking them for something. That's what forgiveness is. Not I'm sorry. And never say to somebody, oh, I'm sorry you were offended by this. If I've sinned against you, <laughs> then I'm, I shouldn't be sorry that you were hurt by that sin. I should be sorry that I sinned. So, very simple application. Ask forgiveness daily. Ask for a blank slate from God to restore your relational um, sense with Him. And also grant forgiveness lavishly so that you can pray with a clear conscience, forgive us our sins, for we forgive those who are indebted to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder. It is um, challenging, and yet um, it's very comforting to know that we can come before you and restore our relationship at any time because of what Jesus did on our behalf. I pray that you'll help us to be people that are so quick to forgive and to restore relationships that we can live in harmony with one another. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, good. And we have 12 minutes for question and answer. So let's do you have any questions specifically about forgiveness or anything tonight? And then we'll move on to other topics. Yes, Jeff.
and then Mike. I'll take that ball and run with it. I know where the question's going, because I actually had that in my notes, and I took it out for time, but now it's a question, so it's fair game. Um, so Jeff's asking, what about in the situation like where Jesus is on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So here's a case, and yes, we can, we can pray that God restores these relationships, that God forgive people for what they've done, but how does God forgive a person if they don't ask forgiveness? Well, he doesn't, except that he can grant them repentance. So in that particular case, we actually see a snapshot of that, don't we? Because Jesus on the cross prays, Father, forgive them, meaning the Roman soldiers that are busy crucifying them, um, and maybe even by extension, all of the Jews that called for his crucifixion, forgive them for they know what, not what they do. And we see later that day, the Roman centurion in charge of the crucifixion recognizes this is the Son of God and appears to repent. So that's, that could be an example of an answer to that prayer. Forgive them, yes, but they have to ask forgiveness. And then, and even all those Jews that crucified Christ, you know, just several weeks later, you've got 5,000, 3,000 of them, and then 5,000 of them cut to the quick. It says, when Peter says, you crucified this Lord by the hands of the Romans, they, they are cut to the quick, and they say, what should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and they do. So even that general, forgive all of these people that were calling for my for my crucifixion, well, thousands of them benefited from that prayer, but because of their repentance. Does that make sense? Does that answer the question, or did I jump the gun? Yeah, so what, what, what Jeff's saying is what if there's a person in your life that's um, sinned against you and then let's say they've died without ever restoring that, um, can you still you know, forgive them and move on? And I, I think all that's happening there is we're just using the word forgiveness a little bit more loosely. What I'm, what I'm opting for here in the sermon is to be more precise about the way we use the word forgiveness. When I'm using it in this context, I mean a transaction between two people. So no, if a person dies before asking my forgiveness, I cannot grant them that. I can always be willing to forgive. When they die, that all goes away. Um, but if you're just using it in a loose sense that I'm letting go of the bitterness that, and resentment that I have towards them for that sin that they've never restored from, then yes, that's, that's a place we need to be in even while a person's alive and not asking our forgiveness. Um, and, and certainly if they, if they die or there comes a state in which they can never ask our forgiveness, my responsibility is as far as it depends on me. So as far as it depends on me is always willing to receive and grant forgiveness. But um, if a person just doesn't do it, then I don't have to be burdened by that. I can move on with my life. Does that answer the question a bit better? Mike. Mm -hmm.
thank you for, for bringing that up. So the question there is, uh, what about the concept of to forgive and forget? And I, when people say you need to forget what happened to you, I understand the concept that what they're saying is don't harp on it, don't dwell on it, move on. But you can't forget because remember, we're, we're told to um, forgive the way God forgives. And God takes my sin as far as the east is away from the west. But God doesn't forget anything. He remembers everything. But he, he does choose, and I, I don't know where the reference is. I think it's in one of the Psalms. He chooses to not remember. There's a Psalm that says, you choose not to remember my guilt. So that's different from forgetting. Forgetting is a passive exercise. Forgetting is what happens to calculus, right? It's just, I didn't try to get rid of it. I loved knowing calculus. I used to be good at it. It's gone now. Um, forgetting is what happens to your high school Spanish, you know? That's different from choosing to not remember something means I'm not going to allow that thought to get a foothold on me. I'm going to, when it pops in my mind, I'm going to put another thought in and push it out. That is an active thing that you might need to do over and over again, depending on what the sin is, for the rest of your life. You know, if, you, if a family member has grievously hurt you, then every time you have Thanksgiving dinner and you go over to their house, you're going to have to prepare yourself beforehand, probably the weeks leading up to it, from the time you get the dreaded invitation, to the drive over there, to the whole time you're there, I'm not going to focus on what they did. I'm going to move on because they've asked forgiveness and I've granted it. Now, if they haven't asked forgiveness, now you go back to other things that you have to do, right? But um, that's what it means to, when people say forgive and forget, I would say, you mean forgive and choose not to remember. But again, I'm not the grammar Nazi police. But it is helpful when you talk about these things to be really specific in the terms you use because a passive forgetting of something is just not something I'm in control of. I'm going to remember it if you hurt me. So I have to choose not to think about it. Great question. Anything else about forgiveness? You can start it off with, I have a friend whose mother-in-law always, and then just tell me the scenario. <laughs> Okay, other questions about anything? Yes, Deb. I mean, the next week when the plates are being handed out, uh -huh. were they simultaneous or did each one? Oh, yeah, good question. It said that the blood of the nine, well, they had to do with great one, but it never said that if landed in Scott, go back to great blood. Yeah, so uh, good question. Well, firstly, the, so the ten plagues of Egypt, were they simultaneous or were they sequential? If you read the narrative, they are sequential. They come out in sequence. Um, and then some, between some of them, there's like a gap where it, it doesn't say that it goes back right. always. But the assumption is there because in those gaps, what, what happens is that Pharaoh hardens his heart again and says, no, we're not going to let them go. So either they learn to cope with the consequence of that or the consequence gets reversed. And that's why he's like, this isn't that bad. No, we, we got through that. Um, but yeah, it's not always clear if there's an ongoing consequence. But when the plague of flies ends, for example, the flies are all gone. Um, and when the locusts end, their bodies all fall to the ground and that kind of thing. So, and when the darkness ends, it's light again. Um, but yeah, no, they are sequential. 